I remember being uh, seven months pregnant with my eldest son and I was 26 and the job that I'd moved to Melbourne for hadn't worked out. And I remember sitting on the concrete floor of my friend's house with nowhere to go and I was really thinking I had to move into a women's shelter and I'd called my mum to ask for help and she said no. And I just gave myself 20 minutes to cry <laughs> and then I needed to figure out what to do. Petta Milan is an incredible human being. She's a global venture builder running her family office, a partner and a mom of three. Petta is a forerunner in the regenerative approach and she walks the walk. I met Petta at her house in Portugal where she transformed her garden from dry soil into a blooming paradise with hundreds of plant species. And yes, these are their 18 chickens singing in the background. Welcome on board. This is Talks of Imperfection. What's your definition for perfection and imperfection? The secretion idea of that there is a perfection as a thing. I don't believe that that exists. And we live in a world where we focus on what we call in regeneration structures. So things we can engage with. It comes from this whole epistemological thing like things only exist if we can touch, feel, see, smell, interact with them. And so we have these ideas of structures like houses, cities, families, relationships, and we give it an ideal view based on our worldview and we relate to it as perfection. And then we're constantly striving for that thing and never happy and constantly disappointed because perfection doesn't exist in the structures. When we're working with regeneration, we're looking at the patterns the underlying worldview and assumptions that give rise to the structures. So when we're looking at the patterns, just like the patterns of nature, everything's already inherently perfect. If it's out of balance, something will happen to bring it back into balance and so forth. So if we see ourselves as part of a living system, we're constantly co-evolving in alignment with the environment within which we're placed then the patterns of everything that give rise, even if they're incredibly painful and uncomfortable, are perfect given the conditions that we're in. And if we want to shift those patterns, then we have to be willing to work at a pattern level, not focusing on the structures like when I get this new job, then I'll be happy, or when I get this next bit of investment, then I will have made it. You know, these types of things. So I think... The pattern and the perfection is in the process, not in the outcomes. Please take us to your childhood, where this journey started. Yeah, so uh, being Australian, growing up in a lower middle class family, uh, it was a big deal for my parents to, you know, get that first house, you know, with a mortgage in the suburbs and... Uh, my family's lineage came from a lot of poverty and particularly on my mother's side, um, you know, people who were ho essentially homeless or uh, having to, uh, um, you know, really go without 
um, and and all the complexity that comes with that and with addiction and abuse and, and different things. And, and that still certainly showed up in my family's uh, lineage, even though they'd managed to overcome some hurdles and, and get that suburban house. There was abuse and addiction was still an issue. And I think from a young age, I was doing things that didn't make sense in the context of my family. So much to the surprise of my parents, I you know, was selected to play the trumpet <laughs> and there was no real musical genes in my family at all. And, um, and because I was an inherently creative child and, and I just never really related to things in uh, the way that I was taught, I was always looking to do things differently. It was just how I expressed myself. And so I actually did a, a, at 12, at the age of 12, did a rearrangement of the Australian classic Waltzing Matilda and went to uh, audition for a music scholarship to a high school that was a specialist. It was the, the top one in the state. Anyway, I went with my little rearrangement of this, uh, this uh, classic and um, I remember being in the audition and playing it and, and they asked me, did you arrange that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I did that. Anyway, I ended up getting, um, you know, the full scholarship. Uh, first trumpet was the lead trumpet. Uh, as a result of, um, of that audition, which was uh, an amazing surprise to my family um, because I just didn't fit into that box. And, um, you know, I remember even getting, you know, losing some friendships from my local primary school because I was moving somewhere else. It was just kind of unheard of. And so that was kind of the theme of my life is not fitting and not doing things the way that they were supposed to be done. And, and with that comes a lot of heartache, especially as a teenager and as a, as a young person trying to figure out where you belong. Um, and, you know, I struggled myself as well, you know, with things that were kind of inherent in my family around addiction and different things in my younger, younger years as I was really trying to find my way. But I found that I had a, a gift um, eventually didn't quite land completely for me uh, as that the not fitting piece was actually uh, my, my talent um, but I was just kind of going with it so I disappeared when I was about 22 <laughs> and I ran, ran away from my life and jumped onto a scallop trawler um, that was working uh, in fisheries in the, in the south of, of Western Australia and Anyway, ended up not really getting a lot of money out of that because there was a lot of um, unregulated, not so nice things happening in that industry at the time. So I went to a bar. I had no money, no place to stay. And I met a horse trainer, a former jockey. And he let me sleep on a stretcher bed in basically what was a giant tin shed at the horse stables in exchange for shoveling horse poop. And uh, so I had these kind of amazing experiences and eventually I got a job in the bar where I'd worked, where I'd found this, this horse trainer and uh, met a guy and he was building a company on the other side of the country. And um, I told him about my degree and different things like this and he's like, well, why don't you come and run it for me? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I packed up my life and moved across to Queensland uh, and then started building companies for other people. And that was when I was 24. So I found that I had this talent for 
finding these niche market premium pricing opportunities. Uh, one of my first jobs was working for a backpackers and anyone who's traveled through Australia know that these things are a dime a dozen. They're selling the same, you know, Fraser Island with Sunday tours for $299 on every street corner. And I was working uh, for one of these and it didn't make sense to me that we were selling the exact same thing as the guy across the road. And so this was before internet was really big and commonly used. And they had these magazines, which were called the TNT magazines, and they were basically for backpackers so that you could see what kinds of things you could do as you traveled. So I picked up the phone and I started calling all of these proprietors up the coast of, of Queensland. And I found these amazing things like platypus night watching tours and things that were just off the beaten track that nobody really knew about. And so when people came into my office to buy these $299 packages, I started showing them all the amazing things they could do. And I, I ticketed them all the way up the north. So they pre-booked and I managed to get amazing wholesale rates in exchange for volume from these proprietors because they just weren't getting customers. And we were, people were spending like $1,500 with us in one sitting. And then there was the old guy who owned the Backpackers Hostel and his name was Dave and he smoked like a chimney. And he came into my office and with his cigarette and he sat back and he's like, so little lady, what the hell are you doing in here? Because I've not seen so much goddamn money in my life. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I told him the, the new business model that I'd created and so they sent me down to uh, – to, um, King's Cross in Sydney to try and pick folks up a little earlier when they were coming in flying through Sydney and uh, they didn't even have a proper ticketing mechanism back then so we were trying to use accounting software to set up these tickets and it, you know it totally changed the business model and and I and did really well I mean the family had some crisis as a result because what I learned from that experience is that you can make incredible money but if, you're, if you don't have the emotional kind of capacity to understand or be able to deal with wealth that can also be destructive. And so, you know, there was uh, one of the family members took their own life in that process. Like they, and, and, and I um, didn't know how much my changing the business model and having them exposed to that level of success and money had contributed to that or not. And that was something that I really had to reconcile for myself. So I knew that with creating wealth um, came um, the the need to develop the capacity to handle wealth like emotionally psychologically uh, and these types of things so I had some really early formative um, experiences around this and then you know by the, about the age of 32 um, I was working as chief operating officer for a company that I helped build and we had been um, collaborating with the big four on quite large-scale projects and I was just I'd kind of become by accident a bit of a mining specialist and I don't mean crypto, I mean actual mining because <laughs> I was living in in Australia at the time. We'd moved back to the West Coast and I just saw so much fractured, broken kind of strategy that was resulting in really big, devastating impacts for communities and also ecologies. And I found this so hard to reconcile for myself and I got really burnt out and so it was that time that I kind of sold everything in Australia. It was the only time I'd ever owned a house and uh, packed up my two kids and we moved uh, to, to northern Thailand for me to figure out what I was going to do if I wasn't going to do that anymore. Hmm. From horse pool to venture building. <laughs> From horse pool to venture building. That's quite a journey. Let's stop there. Um, now you are dealing 
dealing with uh, significant uh, assets and and big money did you consciously work with any money wounds because you you were referring to the um, the kind of psychological capability to handle big money absolutely i mean as i as i moved through this journey um i had to deal with my own self-limiting beliefs and my own worldview that had been unconsciously created i guess through the experiences of my childhood and the meanings that i'd given to my experiences and as i got older i i noticed myself um even though at certain times in our childhood we didn't have enough food to eat and we had some and you know we, we didn't have enough money to put into the car and we would break down on the highway and have to walk for miles and miles to get a jerry can full of fuel for five dollars to put in the car these types of experiences i didn't really go without too much once i left home and there were times though where i remember being uh, seven months pregnant with my eldest son and i was 26 and the job that i'd moved to melbourne for hadn't worked out and i remember sitting on the concrete floor of my friend's house with nowhere to go and I was really thinking I had to move into a women's shelter and I'd called my mum to ask for help and she said no and I just gave myself 20 minutes to cry (laughs) and then I needed to figure out what to do Um, so I finally found um, someone that I'd met who was willing to take me in and let me stay and then I got a job at seven months pregnant working for one of the banks selling credit cards and so I was hugely pregnant and uh, had to sit on one of those big exercise balls. Um, but for two months, I worked, you know, really hard um, to get myself set up and I managed to do that. And so then as I started moving from that type of understanding my own resilience and, and deep capacity that I had for problem solving um, and developing some trust in myself that no matter what happened, I'd be okay – I found myself um, achieving much more when it came to money and wealth, but I found myself still in these boom-bust cycles. And I remember being younger and watching Andrew Forrest, who's a a mining magnate out of Australia, and he would like build these companies and they would be number one on the Australian Stock Exchange and then 10 years later they'd be bankrupt and then he'd disappear for a couple of years and he'd come back Mm. and he'd build another one. It would be like top of the ASX again. And I was always curious about his boom-bust cycles. Like, why could he create wealth but not hold on to it? Mm. And I found myself, uh, obviously, not to the degree of wealth as a mining magnet, but having similar types of patterns. And so, as I worked through it, I had to reconcile for myself that my deep commitment was to have powerful impact on the world. You know, really to create the conditions for the thriving of life, which was why I left a very more traditional way of consulting and corporate career and there was a kind of nobility about that for my identity but I felt shame Mm. around money Mm. I felt shame around saying I am making money or I want money and I even remember moving into this house which is a big house Um, my husband and I we moved to a farm to create um Uh, a regenerative agriculture project here and and the house is quite big and I remember feeling embarrassed Mm, the first time still the first time that people came over to this house Mm -hmm. um, because it's a big house you know and so I'd actually gone to Peru and had worked with some shamans on this to really unlock what was 
still within me but not really conscious and I couldn't access through other means and um, really finding my identity linked to this history and this story of poverty through my family. And it's interesting because we don't know if things from previous ancestors impact us genetically or impact our predisposition or just our worldview or there's some energies that come through that we hold on to. But there was definitely a lot of energy for me that had shame around money hmm. where I'm still working on letting that go. And have, have you found solutions to that crash and burn um, volatility? Have you, have you made it more sustainable now? Or? Well, I'm still working through it, to be mm. honest. Okay. Um, because um, we have moments of like really powerful success. And I, and I think we all have this to a degree. You know, when we have these experiences of everything's just flowing in our life and things feel easy, and then at some point they just feel really, really hard. Mm. You know, that's another version of these like boom and bust cycles, right? So I needed to deepen my understanding around my own attachments when I get attached to things and then my creative energy contracts or mm. when I feel shame around things. What's the dialogue that I'm telling myself? Like, what am I vested in? And there was definitely a part of my identity that was really attached to this triumphant warrior woman narrative, mm. you know? Mm. And if I didn't have an adversity to overcome and triumph through, where was my value? Mm. That's, I think, many people can relate to it. At least I can relate to it. I got the warrior spirit running in my veins as well. Um, well, let's go then back to South America. What was the um, insight you you received there? What was helpful? Well, I mean, so many things. But really, I guess the primary part of it for me was that in order to create an experience on the planet that was conducive to the conditions of, of thriving of life, like not just surviving but thriving, what would that mean and what would it mean for myself to thrive? Mm. I need to let go of having the warrior woman define me, mm. that I needed to move into an energy of um, healing, well, I'd, I'd been doing a lot of healing anyway, but more of this kind of Kuan Yin energy of um, perfection, like mm. that everything is okay, there's nothing to fight, mm. you know, and that leads us to this podcast conversation around perfection. Mm. Like what if there was nothing wrong? <laughs> you know, what if everything that showed up was actually perfect in the context of my journey? What would there be left to do? Mm. And in the process of exploring that, I noticed myself feeling bored. Mm -hmm. I noticed myself feeling undefined. Mm -hmm, when nothing's happening. Yeah. And, and normally when I put on my battle armor and go into action, I had to sit back and breathe and learn how to open yeah. and allow. And it was a totally different way of being. And I still don't have enormous strength of that. I still have a mm. very kind of fire energy mm. Um and that's great because it has me take a lot of powerful actions. It has me inspire people. It has me build powerful networks. It mm. has a, so I'm not throwing it out with, you know, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, but there is definitely a willingness to drop my armor mm. and to say, okay, I'm going to learn how to be at peace 
with whatever shows up now mm. and trust that it's perfect in the context of my vision, my purpose and my journey, mm. even if it's really, really painful and uncomfortable. Yeah. What's your message to all the warriors and alphas out there? What What is the first step to, you know, start to start a bit more sustainable journey? Yeah, well, I think we need to be willing to see ourselves as part of a living system, mm. not separate to it. No separation, yeah. And that's, you know, my passion, and we'll get to talking about that with my family of office, is about investing in regeneration because it is a mindset shift. Mm. It's seeing ourselves as part, in, interconnected part of something mm. that's much bigger than our own identity and our own survival. And this idea of kind of modern day economics and competition and survival of the fittest and all of this kind of stuff it's come from a long legacy mm. of feeling like we're separate to nature mm. not part of it and you know a lot of this thinking came around through philosophers like francis bacon and descartes and and these types of folks that really turned us into this very mechanistic way of seeing the world mm. where the nested system became inverted so If you imagine a big circle, which is the environment, and within the environment sits our social constructs, and then within that is the economy, which is a small part of a technosphere. Mm. That's the way in which the nested system actually lives, but we've been relating to it in the reverse, the outside circle being the economy, and then the inside circle being um the social human capital that we have to use as resources. And then within that is our environment, which is natural capital resources there for us to extract. And that's how we've ended up in such a bad place with respect to climate and social inequalities that then are posing massive risks today mm. to the future value of our assets. And and, and so we, we need to flip that around. So if I'm being regenerative not just doing regenerative things but if i'm being regenerative i'm seeing myself as a part of a living system mm. and within the living system there is reciprocal benefit there's a kind of a harmony and a flow mm. between its participants there's a shared energy uh, there's a common purpose and if i separate myself out from that there'll always be a fight for me to have But if I see myself as an integral part of it, I can just be. Mm. And trust. And trust and trust. allow. Yeah. Trusting in a deep way, trusting the universe. Yeah, and trusting my own capacity to respond from a healthy, loving place. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue to talk about the place where we are right now. Because, um, yeah, it was pretty funny to arrive this beautiful house close to Sintra here in Portugal, and the chickens came. <laughs> Our little ladies. Yeah, ladies came, and they are so beautiful and friendly, and they, you know, you want to cuddle them, and actually you can cuddle them. There's very special chickens. <laughs> <laughs> They've been bred with a lot of love. Yeah, I can, I can feel my, it. My husband, he takes all the, like, uh, a lot of the vegetables from the garden that we've planted, and he, like, painstakingly chops them all up. And so they have this gourmet diet. Ah. <laughs> they don't get fed chicken feet at all. Nice. And so everything is is 
kind of put back into the earth, into the animals with as much love as we can. So we've planted about 150 different species here since March of this year and now it's September and Risto, you've seen how much we've got going on here now. We've made it's our paradise. own soil. Yeah, it's getting there. We've made our own soil, so it's looking pretty fabulous now compared to what it was. And the speed, it's so fast when you when you treat the soil right. It it's just stunning yeah i mean it's that's the power of a living system right i mean the soil is our biggest living organism on the planet and if we give love and care and and the right types of conditions it will recover quickly yeah and that's you know the frustrating thing that we look at when we look at like large cities who are committing to net zero by 2050 we don't have that type of time yeah, yeah, yeah. and investors who are still investing in traditional ways and not really understanding the power of impact or how to do impact properly is if we're able to drive effort and energy into regeneration it is fast mm. we don't have to wait you know 30 50 years for things to recover and just this like little plot of land that we have here where we're, you know, working our best way to walk our talk in terms of our commitment in the world and our vision, you can see already it's a significant difference from, I mean, I showed you the difference between the soil quality of what we moved to because we still have some patches where we've kept that and then the soil that we've actually made ourselves and put back into the earth and the difference between the two um, is quite significant for only six months mm, i love this such a segue to your business world <laughs> from backyard to the to the family office uh, world so could you describe us where where are you at the moment with the with the, um, your office yeah so we created a family office called the henmill group family office out of dubai and um, we have quite a lot of venture building and tech capabilities in our business and Oh, in our family, I should say. And um, I sit on the International Advisory Board for the World Sustainable Development Forum, which was founded by the former chairman of the IPCC. And uh, he, uh, my beloved Dr. Uh, Rahendra Pachari, who passed a few years ago, he asked me to join because he knew I was very action-oriented. He loved that fiery war warrior woman spirit that I had. Um, and he was getting a bit tired of... Um, Often when we go to things like COP and the World Economic Forum and Climate Week, there's a lot of talk, but there's not always a lot of action that transpires out of that. And that can be really frustrating, particularly when we don't have a lot of time. And so uh, he wanted to create this group as an action-oriented group. Um, and then so I also around the same time was asked to join uh, All Hands, which is a multidisciplinary, multi-stakeholder group working to counter radicalization and violent extremism. And because I'd grown up with abuse, I was really interested in what led people to violence. Um, you know, as a young woman becoming a mother at a young age, I had to address that for myself too in my journey, like how to break intergenerational patterns of abuse mm. so that I didn't become an abuser. Mm. And so, so that was also part of, of something in my journey that was really important. So I'd stay fascinated by that multi-generational impacts, multi-generational um, patterning hmm. and how to interrupt it. And so when I saw how the investment world was working um, as a result of traditional models of investment and economics and the lack of diversity that we just spoke about, I was seeing that money was not flowing into areas that could 
have rapid impact at an accelerated rate and still deliver returns. So I needed to kind of create a new model. Hmm. So we established the family office with a view to investing pre-seed, so pre-revenue, and working with the founders or businesses that our company had designed from the ground up um, to be regenerative. That means that they follow living principles design that they work to create the conditions for the thriving of life and they have the capacity to create impact across sectors. And a lot of the siloed, fragmented thinking that I'd seen across business and across the investor landscape where it's very sector-focused, it's very single-project-focused, it's wanting to invest in um, kind of growth stage a lot of the time, uh, There wasn't a whole lot of innovation coming about because people were only willing to invest in stuff that has proof of success already. Um, So while other people in my age group were getting mortgages and buying houses, I was putting everything that I had into building businesses. Um, And so our family office still hasn't ventured into into real estate yet, but we will. Um, But our focus is to uh, really work on regenerative pre-seed ventures and grow them to seed and series A. And then invite other family offices with those proof of revenues and proof of impact to come in and co-invest. And what I really appreciate in you is, is really the you walk the walk. And, and uh, I think the, the project you guys did in Mexico City, I think that's a, it's a great um, example of, of this uh, thinking and, and the holistic approach. Maybe you could um, share a bit about that. Yeah, well, that wasn't us that delivered that. That was our delivery partner in the US. But what they did, um, it was working on um, the water issue in Mexico City because um, Mexico City has a lot of problems with with drought. Mm. Um, And and we're starting to see that arising now even in Europe. But what they did was they took a regenerative approach. So they worked with multi-stakeholders, including uh, one of the major universities there and also local business and government and also civil society. And what they realized was that the main highways that they'd built <laughs> through the, ce- the center of Mexico City was actually sitting over the top of underground streams. So the community got together and, and did these like picnics on the meridian, they called it, where they brought a lot of people into the like grassy meridians of these massive highways to bring awareness to that people were driving over the top of their water. Mm. And um, they basically invented new technologies in which to share uh, water um, and to be able to access these underground streams. And I think there was a big earthquake in 2017 I'm not quite sure if that's the exact date, so if I'm wrong, I apologies. But nevertheless, there was a big earthquake and the risk factor was 4 million homes without water as a result of that. But because they had already discovered these streams by doing this regenerative project in the city and they'd built these water-sharing capabilities within the community, that entire disaster was averted. I mean, the earthquake still happened, but there weren't 4 million homes without water. Mm. And so that is definitely um, the power of, of working regenerative. And, and the perfection is in the process, not in the outcomes. Mm-hmm. And how you define success for yourself? F- 
for me, success. So, so I have for myself a very clear sense of, of purpose and direction in service of the kind of world I would like to see, which is one that's thriving, one in which all of life has an opportunity to thrive. Sometimes along that journey, I have to make really difficult decisions that almost can seem anti-regenerative, like maybe I have to sack one of my employees Maybe I have to negotiate really hard on a deal. I think for me, success is the degree to which I can be really growing my own awareness around my own imperfections and how to what degree I can keep calling myself forth in service of that vision. And I'm not going to do it perfectly every time I'm going to mess up I'm going to have moments of not really knowing what to do I'm going to feel incredibly vulnerable and scared at different times I'm going to experience pain and maybe I'll unintentionally cause pain to others but the process of living in alignment with one's purpose is about how open and willing am I to be vulnerable and in service of this direction and it's got to be bigger than one's ego and identity. But I know I still give myself a hard time if I feel like I mess up. <laughs> yeah. Those are beautiful words from a recovering uh, warrior, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So beautiful. Recovering warrior. I like that. Yeah. So what, what imperfections of your own you are working with right now? What is the kind of um, current theme? Yeah, I think the um, I think I'm still really working to deepen my relationship to safety mm. in the face of uncertainty. Mm. Um, coming from the experience of the childhood that I had, there was a lot of unsafety, right, and um, and there was a lot of volatility too well I mean when you have a parent that's an abuser you're constantly vigilant you're constantly watching out for you know the next signal that something is gonna erupt and I had to work really really hard to move beyond hypervigilance and so now I feel in this really strange space of deeply profoundly trusting the process like with my every cell in my body And at the same time, when certain outcomes don't occur in the time frame that my mind thinks that they ought to, struggling with the anxiety or the lack of safety around that. Mm. And I mean, that's an example of a dyadic relationship, right? <laughs> There you go. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so I'm really working to, to deepen my, uh, my, my capacities around that and to um to to be able to be very compassionate with myself in those moments hmm. and what what has been the most significant professional risk you have taken well i mean one of the companies that we came into um we realized that the business model wasn't going to work 
and we had to reposition the business model of the company. But the company had quite, quite a lot of debt and in the country that the company was incorporated, there was no limited liability structure for a company. So we had to take on quite a large number of hundreds of thousands of euros worth of personal debt in order to reposition that company um, with no guarantee of its success. Um, and I know that investors do that all the time. They put money into things without any guarantee of success. Um, but making the kind of transition that we needed to for this business was going to be a challenging one. But I really believed in the, in the potential and, and the purpose of it. So we did that anyway. Um, so we've continued in general to really walk our talk around investing in pre-seed ventures and to not deviate from that thesis. And that has meant in the short term, at least anyway, over the past five or six years, we haven't been able to invest in other types of things that we, you know, like property or whatever, because we really, because of the venture building and the technology expertise that we have, we've been very, very hands-on with those ventures, sometimes stepping into management roles if we needed to, um, whatever. So we're not so, we're not focused as a family office on becoming the next billionaires. Mm. We're focused on really creating powerful companies that are really fundamentally transformative and deliver really good returns. So we don't mind doing the venture building stuff because as far as my brother and I are concerned, it's the stuff that really lights us up anyways. Mm. Um, but I would like to be able to shift to being able to work more full time on the family office side of things rather than in the operations of businesses at some stage. But as we scale, we'll be able to do that. As we build, we're opening up a talent network actually where we're offering for free, um, I guess, training and education to folks in regenerative um, frameworks with a view to coming in and working with us when, when jobs become available because it takes some time to really be able to work and function with these frameworks powerfully. So we thought it was better to open that up and do that for free out to the marketplace rather than employ someone and then have to spend six months training them up and grooming them for that. It would help us scale a bit faster. Mm. Let's talk about family office dynamics. I find it quite hilarious world because you have the archetypes always running around there. You have the, you know, the spender boy is on the yachts and, you know, doesn't give a shit about the 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 uh, the, the uh, future of the office. Then someone is in India searching for herself, and the third one is like reluctantly taking the lead. Um, you know when the when the uh, father is passing. Yeah, the succession planning. Yeah, the yeah, reluctant yeah. succession yeah, plan. Yeah, I think it's always kind of um, fun to to um, observe the dynamics, how, how it goes with with your brother and the family. Well, I mean, so, well, yeah, I think it's interesting because um, my husband doesn't actually really want to be a hands-on part of it. He wants to do his work on the farm. Mm. So I guess he's kind of the reluctant spender, <laughs> even though he's not on a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> he's out with the chickens. Chicken boy, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm the very archetypal kind of entrepreneurial visionary. Yeah. And my brother is this amazingly talented guy who has a PhD in in, in um, earth science, oh, earth sciences, no, not earth sciences, 
anyway, he's a biologist. Um, and uh, he is really a powerful, powerful regenerative practitioner, amazing talent there. And he really loves people and he loves getting his hands really into the operations and and you know working in the operation side of things so for me with my brother it feels completely harmonious Mm. it's like i create the vision i come up with you know what's in alignment if it resonates with him he's totally on board and he's like my powerful implementer Mm. partner um and so that frees me up to do the things that i love to do which is like working with founders and working with the networks of family offices and you know, creating that, doing the kind of like concept design for the niche market premium position, like business models. And, um, and so, so it's really interesting harmony Mm. between my brother and I, I wasn't always like that between us, but we've both been so committed to our own healing and growth journey that we've just found ourselves in this place, this perfect moment in time Mm. where our paths are aligned in service of a common a common vision and a common purpose and we haven't had those conversations yet because our kids are still pretty young mm. i took my 19 year old to a web three mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, event and he he looked mostly bored <laughs> 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 and he's he's not really like the networker guy yeah um i mean our other kids are still quite young like 12 and 13 so they've got time so yeah i mean when it comes to the succession planning Um, it'll be really interesting to see how our kids grow and develop and who feels called forth towards um, pursuing something similar to what my brother and i are doing and that's when the fun starts (laughs) yeah that's when the complex dynamics start exactly um how far the vision spans because that's usually interesting in in family offices and lineage of business because the the vision is usually quite quite long right yeah of course i mean for for me our family office is working in service of the planet Mm. and the living systems which includes you know humanity so how long is that (laughs) i don't know according to elon musk not very long (laughs) he's trying to get us to mars but you know i'm i'm very i'm very loyal so i'm all about the earth i'm not interested in mars um, I'd really like to see this beautiful system, you know, recover and really kind of regenerate new life and mm. bring back a lot. I mean, we're looking at, you know, depletion of 75% of insect species and, mm. you know, we're on target for, you know, loss of 90% of plankton in the oceans and things like this, which are fundamentally devastating, not just to humanity, but mm. to all of life. And what would need to happen if we would bounce back to, you know, 2050? Um, from you know, if we look back from 2050 and and um, we look these these um, sad times in the 2020s, what, what needs to happen really that we we are back in beautiful biodiversity and and um, the planet is is thriving? I think a mindset shift. Because if we have a mindset shift and we start to engage with ourselves as part of a living system a value-adding part of a living system where we're committed to adding more value than we extract, then our behaviours will shift. Mm. You know, our way, our investment strategies will shift, our way of doing business will shift, how we design evolutionary business models will shift. And so I, I think I think tackling these structures is a really ineffective way to do it, which is what we've been doing. We've been investing into... Um, 
the SDGs and I don't want to knock the SDGs, but they, they can be quite siloed. Some folks will say I'm only focusing on SDG 5 or I'm only focusing on SDG 17. Um, and then when, you know, we're looking at investor funding, it's going into an oceans thesis or an energy transition thesis or something like this climate tech. We're not actually looking at the systems and investing in transitions. And so our goal in our family office is to create a fund uh, sometime in the next two years, um, which will be small. McKinsey's estimates that it will take $275 trillion to invest in all the transitions needed by 2050. So we will do a small one of a billion and invite other family officers and investors to participate in that so that we can do whole city transitions. And what's the role of female leadership in all this? Diversity. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's diversity. Um, we just, we don't have enough. I mean, let's not talk about male, female as bodies. Let's talk about energies, mm. right? So I can be a woman. I can still have a very masculine energy. And that's, you know, my warrior princess energy. But then there's, you know, but I don't want to say that too because there's many feminine archetypes as well. There's not just... You know, the soft nurturing, Kuan Yin is, represents all feminine. No, then you've got the powerful Kali and you've got all of these other different types of feminine. But I think it's bringing together the energies in balance within ourselves and then also at the investor tables and at the boardroom tables in order to bring in balance. And I'm really good friends with Nilima Bhatt who wrote Shakti Leadership with Raja Zodia and it's talking about bringing together the masculine feminine energies in leadership. And I really, really believe in that. I mean, my, my brother has a beautiful feminine energy about him. I'm probably a little more on the dominant masculine side, on the energy side. Um, but we're both working uh, on our balance, right? And I think that that's fundamentally important. But I do think that you need to have more women, more people of color, more definitely more ethnic groups at the leadership tables because we need that diversity, you know, in order to have multiple worldviews that deepen our understanding of living systems. If our view of living systems is, you know, and I'm sorry to play stereotypes, so I don't normally like to do it, but in the investor world, it is largely white men who've been to some Ivy League school that teach certain types of curriculum that have come from certain types of families. We have a very monocultured worldview. And we're not able to see beyond that when we're making decisions. So I think deepening our diversity um, with women, but not just women, is critically important for us to create greater balance and harmony with our living systems. Hmm. I think you summarize it all there. It's it's a beautiful spot to to end and and kind of um, let that manifest, right? Well, I hope it does manifest into something because <laughs> we're in our decade of action. <laughs> yeah, we have to do that. Cool. Thank you so much for joining Talks of Imperfection. This was a beautiful session. Thank you, Risto. It's really an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talks of Imperfection. The podcast is enabled by Edita Prima, the kindest Nordic tech company that orchestrates automated customer journeys to perfection by turning data friendly. That's all folks. It was good to have you on board. 
please subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Instagram and hold tight until the next episode.